and maybe need a reminder. And I thought it would be a fitting way to finish our, our time together. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we're just grateful to you for the ability to know you in your word, through your son, by your spirit. I pray that you would help us now as we look at two expressions of praise to you and we look at your attributes that are there, um, written by Paul, yes, but breathed out by you, and how you want us as your people to view you. And so I pray that you would give us the grace to see these things, help us, and encourage everyone here, edify, up, uplift. And uh, I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, one of the things I was going to start with before we jump into that, and it's been a while since we talked about the being of God in his um, triune, his triunity, his threeness in one, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, and the being of God. And when we were th- singing this morning, one of the songs, can't remember what it was now, but do, I don't know if you caught it, but we were giving expressions of praise to each person in the Godhead, right? Do anybody know what song that was? Graham's not in with us, but... Yeah, there we go, Sarah, thank you. Come Thou Almighty King, and we were praising the Father, and we're praising the Son, and we're praising the Holy Spirit, and I think it's appropriate to do that, first of all, and that is uh, biblical, and it is good to be offering praise to each one and even be thinking in terms of, you know, the Lord is one, God is one, and yet one in three. And uh, in your Bible reading, I want to encourage you, especially this comes out right in the New Testament where the uh, revelation of God's triunity is most fully expressed and taught and understood. When you're reading through, look for um, indicators or things that Paul or another writer or somebody will say that make mention to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. You know, even when we were talking about Roman, in Romans 7 this week and those first seven verses, you see in there the Son and the Spirit show up. Or if you're reading Ephesians one, uh, as an example, and what God, how God has saved us, we see God the Father in there, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, when we were baptized, you're baptized into the name of the Father and Son and the Spirit. And I thought for me it was a good exercise as I was thinking through just the doctrine of the Trinity and the being of God to be looking for things like that. It's all of a sudden when you're conscious of it, it starts popping up. And even as we're singing some of our songs, it's popping up. It's an important part of, it's the unique part, aspect of the Christian faith is um, our one God and three persons. And uh, so anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there because it caught me this morning as as we were singing that song and I was thinking about it and it was on my own mind and heart so I thought I'd share that with you. But tonight we're going to talk about... uh, doxology, first of all, just generally, and then we're going to look at these two doxologies from 1 Timothy. We are, of course, we've talked about this in our uh, discussions about God, and that is that we are, He has created us as worshipers. This is what we are. We are, like we mentioned this morning, inherently religious people. God has ingrained that in us. And we are uh, to be worshiping, of course, the one true God, And sprinkled throughout the Bible are what we call these doxologies. What is a doxology? It's really made up of two Greek words, doxa, 
which is the Greek word for glory, honor, or praise. And then logos, of course, which is speech, saying, or word. So a doxology then is verbal praise to God. Okay, when we are uh, praising God using our um, uh, speech, we are forming somewhat of a doxology, right? We are to be praising him uh, with our words. And we see this as an example throughout the Psalms. We are to be praising the Lord. It's actually a command oftentimes. One thing, too, that's helpful when you're reading through a Psalm and it says, it gives you a command, praise the Lord. Well, do it, right? Obey that command and give verbal praise to God. But there, these are these, uh, these special doxologies that show up in our Bible. Uh, and let me read them to you so you know what I'm talking about. Chapter 1, verse 17 is a doxology. Where Paul says, to the, king of eight, uh, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. That's a doxology. And you might see that in Paul, you can see it in Peter, you can see it in other places. Um, the, another, the, the next doxology is in chapter 6, and we'll look at these two, th- these two doxologies in detail in just a minute, but I'm just kind of introducing here. Um, and he says in ver- verse 15, the second half of that verse, he, speaking of God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so we see these both of these doxologies here. You notice that they, uh, there are a few indicators of doxology like this. Uh, they contain attributes of God oftentimes. Things like, and these are his kingship, his sovereignty, his Im, uh, immortality. They ascribe uh, eternal glory to God. So with something to the effect of, to him be glory, you know, forever and ever or into the ages. And they are also spontaneous results of revealed or contemplated truth. It's as though the author is writing on something, thinking about something, and then there is this breakout of spontaneous praise to God, almost as though it was unplanned in what he was doing. It wasn't part of the outline, so to speak. It's, he's pondering what is being said, and he breaks out in praise to God. And so um, you will see these in, uh, sprinkled through your Bible. You can look at, uh, for some of those uh, as, you, as you read your Bibles. Um, I love the one, I, mean, I am going to show you one other one before we talk about these ones in First Timothy, and that's Romans 11. And this is a very well known here, um, beginning in verse 33. And I love this so much because you know, as we're studying through Romans, we're seeing some of these really um, complicated things that Paul addresses and brings out. And one of the sections that'll be very com- uh, complicated in the sense of trying to really think through what Paul is trying to get at is in Romans 9 through 11 when he, he's talking about the nation of Israel and what God has done with them and all of these teachings come out. And at the end, it's like as he's, as he's teaching the Romans this, as he's explaining this, right? In verse 33, he just breaks out with, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who knew has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. And I've said that when we come across sections of Scripture that are challenging to us or we come across... Uh, things that we just can't reconcile in our own mind or uh, when we talk about a theology class like this has been and that mystery of theology that's running through all the theology where we just see things that are just bigger than us, so to speak. What is the proper response to that? Just a, a praising God 
and praising God for who he is. So these are, these are doxologies, and we are to be a people of doxology, of course. We are to be offering to God uh, verbal praise. Let's break these up, though. I want to just go through uh, each one of these back in 1 Timothy 1 and then 1 Timothy 6 and analyze these two. Oh, before we do that, let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about the uh, context of Timoth- uh, 1 Timothy because I think this is important. Paul had left this young man, Timothy, over the church in Ephesus to be what we might compare as uh, uh, the lead pastor of the, that congregation. And we get the idea from chapter 1 that Timothy wasn't super keen on the assignment because Paul says, I urged you when I went on to Macedonia to remain here in Ephesus. He might have wanted to go with Paul. He might have felt somewhat intimidated uh, because there were already people within Ephesus teaching and even teaching things they already shouldn't have been. And Paul, uh, Timothy is supposed to step in here and like kind of take control of the situation and you know, tell them to stop teaching that and establish elders in the church and do all these other kinds of things. And there was quite an intimidation. So it is interesting to me as Paul's teaching Timothy in this letter and encouraging him, he's stopping with these two doxologies almost as though they are reminders to Timothy of who his God is. You need to be reminded, Timothy, of who your God is. And um, how, how important is that, even in all of our lives, when we are in situations, and God often does this, makes us feel powerless, uh, out of control, weak, insufficient, um, facing the unknown, all of these types of situations that God just masterfully lows how to lead us through in these situations and put us right in these places where we feel that way, these reminders of who our God is, right? Have you ever had to do that? You ever had to just stop in a situation? I just got to remind myself of who my God is in this situation, right? So these these doxologies can help you do that. And I have no doubt that it was in Paul's mind, even as he's breaking forth into this praise, in reminding um, Timothy of who his God is in this very overwhelming situation. He will have to do it again in 2 Timothy because uh, by all accounts, as we, we see the, what has happened by 2 Timothy, he really needed to be, again, reminded of who his God is and be helped along in there as he is becoming discouraged. But let's look at this first one, chapter 1, verse 17. This is in the context here, verses 12 through 16, Paul recounting his testimony, uh, maybe not in detail, but overall, you know, saying, I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. I received mercy and grace. Um, I was saved, uh, and, and Christ has shown this patience in me as a pattern for everybody else who would believe. And as he's recounting this, of course, it just causes him in verse 17 to recount or to praise God, which always, right, when we think about our salvation and the grace shown to us and we think about our history and we think about who we were and we think about the grace that God has just shown to us, immediately what should envelop in our hearts is that of worship and praise to God, right? And, uh, and so he says in verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Let's break this down a little bit. He refers to God as the king of the ages, literally king eternal or the eternal king. The gist is this, God is the king over all time. He always has been the king in eternity past. He always will be the king in eternity future. There is not a time over which God is not ruling and reigning as king. He is the king of the 
ages. Of course, we always, we understand God to exist outside of time, but he is the king of the ages and that he is the creator and governor and ruler of the ages in which we live and in which we exist, right? There is not a time over which God is not ruling. He has never assumed the throne. There was never a coronation ceremony for God. He has just always been king, right? He is the king over all the ages. Now, let me ask you a question. I don't know if I have time to do this in every one. But that knowledge that God is the king of the ages, how can that help you in your life? It puts things in perspective. Okay. We're so finite. Yes. Our problems and whatever, he can handle it all. That's right, yeah, good. He can handle it all. We're finite, puts things in perspective. God's, what? A, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Good. Available all the time. Anybody else have anything? Yes. Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit more of that in, in coming up in a minute, but uh he's ruling over all the ages, all the time periods. You know, I thought about it even in in life when if I look back and let's say I have regrets of past or decisions that I made that I wish I would have done something different, whatever it is, I take comfort in the fact that God was kinging over that event too and he was kinging over me and he was ruling and then when I think about my future, it isn't as though I need to be anxious about that because I know into the future God is ruling and reigning and always will be, right? So, I mean, there's ways in which we can connect this idea of God being the king of the ages into our, just our daily life, our thinking about things, and that, okay? So he's the king of the ages. And then um, he says he is immortal, immortal. I'm going to offer a humble suggestion here that we think of that uh, we think of that more in terms of incorruptible. The reason I say that is because in in First Timothy, Timothy six he uses a word for immortal, and actually they translate as immortal, which is uh, most literally undying. But this word here, uh, immortal, has reference to do with being incorruptible unable uh, to be corrupted, not subject to decay in any way. And um, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul separates these two words when he says, when you get your new body in the resurrection, it's going to be immortal, that is undying, that's 1 Timothy 6, and it's going to be incorruptible, like not subject to decay. These are two, they're similar, but I think they're, they're a little bit different. It means God cannot be corrupted in any sense of the word. He does not deteriorate. And you think about just that fact and how much that sets us apart now from who we are as we deteriorate. Uh, Paul even says our outer self is wasting away day by day, right? And uh, yeah, it's true, isn't it? He's like, that's true, that's true. But it's like you see, you, if you, let's say you haven't seen somebody and in many years, and also you see them, you're like, wow, you get in the car and you drive away. It's like, man, they're getting old, aren't they? Wow, did you see that or whatever? Uh, you, you know, maybe you don't say that. It's, not, it's mean, but it's true. We can see the natural deterioration, the corruption. But in addition to that, when we think about corruption, it's not just physical corruption that is a danger for, for us, right? It is moral corruption, spiritual corruption. And if you're even thinking about um, the idea of, of our government leaders and different things like this, there's such a distrust because they're corruptible, morally speaking. Um, and God cannot be. You know, the Proverbs say, say to us, and we would tell our kids this all the time, of course, bad company corrupts good morals. But not for God. 
And as a matter of fact, God incarnate, Jesus, could live with the most corrupted people and be around them all day, all the time, and never be corrupted by that. And that's amazing. By the way, when he says we're, in, we're going to be incorruptible in the resurrection, that's really good news because that means we're never going to get a repeat of Genesis 3, you know, 100,000 years into eternity. Um, we, we're not going to fall. There is no fall. Yes, Annie. Yes, that's right. Yes. So what the Spirit is doing in us, even as our outer self is wasting away, is that inner man is being renewed day by day. It's good. So God is incorruptible. And I think that's helpful for us, right, to think about in our walk with God. Um, this speaks to much of his trustworthiness um, in who he is, sets him apart from everything else we experience in a fallen world around us all right then he says that he is invisible invisible you can't see him right we talked about God's invisibility before and we talked about it in context of you remember one conversation that Jesus had what conversation did Jesus have with somebody and we and he mentions maybe not his invisibility but something that's very close to it remember what it was the woman at the well. He's a spirit, right? And as the old catechism says, God is a spirit, does not have a body like men. And we talked about the, the fact that God is uh, not compro, uh, comprised of parts or pieces or a bunch of molecules put together or anything like that he is invisible and though there could be a number of things so as Paul because I had to read I kind of was thinking through this and if Paul's just breaking out and praise to God why is he putting invisibility here I mean there's a plethora of <laughs> options he could choose from the attributes of God in order to place here but he puts in here invisibility and just out of curiosity, does anybody have any ideas that float to your head about that? Yeah, Aaron. Because, he knows him. because what now? Because he knows him. Okay. Because of God being invisible, he has gotten to know the one that is invisible. So in a sense, he could hide from him hmm. because he would never see him. So the fact that he knows God and that God has revealed himself to him. Yeah, okay, okay, good, good. Yeah, when I think about God's invisibility and the importance of what that communicates and the idea of spiritness, we think about anything that would be visible would be, could be limited in its being, Right? And in contrast to the fake gods and the false gods that people in Ephesus were worshiping and that great goddess Artemis, uh, the temple they had there to her and the idol that they would worship of her, this god, in contrast to that, cannot be seen but can be known. Uh, through, the, through his eternal son who took on flesh then, uh, and in John 1 he says no one uh, has ever seen God but... Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. His son has made him known to us now in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It talks about, we think about God's spiritness. His presence is everywhere in all his fullness. Remember, we talked about that concept of God's omnipresence with us. And, um, and so he is, uh, uh, he is, he is um, invisible, but he is present. He is uh, knowable. Okay, so he's invisible. And then uh, Paul says what? He is the only God. The only God. Remember how we started this class way back September? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And we talked about the idea that what that was communicating is really two things. He's one in being and he's the only one. And that becomes very clear throughout the rest of Scripture that He is the only 
true, living, real God. And all other gods are false gods. There is only one God. That's a little easier for us to accept living in a mainly monotheistic culture, right? But if you grew up in a polytheistic culture, that is earth-shattering information that all the other gods that you have heard of or have been worshiping are not real. And this is the one true and only God. Well, if he was visible, he might appeal to me, but he might not appeal to you. Ah, yeah, yeah, good, good. He says, uh, and then he says, Then he breaks out, so in this, where is he? In verse 17, he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and here it is now, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Literally, honor and glory unto the ages of the ages. So this continual, age-lasting Glory and honor being given to God. This kind of praise and glory to Him goes on forever and ever. I want to show you something in reference to this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, he's talking about being say, our, our salvation here and recounts we were dead in sin and enslaved to sin and the passions of our flesh, really helpless, powerless. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now catch this in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God wants to be honored and glorified by us and through us now. This is true. Um, Our salvation, our testimonies, they bring honor and glory to God in this present age in which we live. But we also have to understand that God had a plan, in His plan, our salvation by His grace alone is by His design to result in His praise and honor and glory in the coming ages, like forever. This is why I, I don't have a problem with, you know, you think about somebody that just gets saved maybe in the last moments of their life and they didn't have an opportunity to bring any honor or glory to God with their life at all. And yet... Because it was God's plan to bring glory to himself by his grace for ages and ages and ages and ages to come, you see, for all eternity, that we are going to be offering this doxology to God and even our very existence by his grace in glory is going to be bringing him glory, then we shouldn't have any problem with people coming in at the last minute, even people you might not have ever expected to see there, right? We always hear people say that. You're going to see people there You probably never expected to see them in the kingdom. And in this life, they had no opportunity to bring God glory, but they had heard the gospel. And they were at the very end. And God, by His grace, makes them alive and unites them to Christ and saves them. Now, all of a sudden, for all eternity now, He's going to be praised by them, right? And by us, I think He will be praised even more Because, um, I'll I'll quote to you one author, he said, God is continually going to demonstrate his kindness in the succeeding ages. Ultimately, it is in the future age 
that this grace will be fully appreciated. At the present time, we are limited because of our sinful and human limitations and take for granted the abundance of grace. In the future, with a new body and without sin, we will be able to fully appreciate the surpassing greatness of the wealth of His grace. You know, God is so patient with us, gracious, that oftentimes we just grow bored with our salvation, you might say. We lose this awe of amazing grace in our life. And yet he knows because he knows all things and knows the future and into the ages. He can see us in all of the glory he has given to us and with hearts that, believe me, not for one second will lose sight of the amazing grace that's been poured out in us And really not till then will we really understand his kindness, right? And his grace to us until those ages in which we are as we should be in our perfection. So, yeah. Do you think that gives a little perspective too to uh, the parable of the uh, labors of the vineyard? Mm -hmm. When um, he's saying even those that come in at the 11th hour. Yes. Yeah. Right, yes. Yep, that's right. That's good. All the other guys, though, in that story, they didn't like that. They no. Didn't yes. Why at the last minute, the 11th hour, does he get to come in? Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, you even think about the, um, the, the story of the thief on the cross and how controversial that would have been to many who read it mm-hmm. and how offensive um, that here was this uh, robber murderer, most likely, uh, being hung on a cross and getting promised the kingdom. And yet there were people that were working their whole lives to get into the kingdom, and they weren't getting in. And um, that is, yeah, that's because it's, what is he showing? The immeasurable riches of his grace right? This is whole concept of grace, and it's, it's ununderstandable to many, this concept of grace. Nobody merits eternal glory, and, um, and that's what makes grace amazing, isn't it? Right? So, good. Um, okay, now, let's go to chapter 6. And we'll look at the, the last little bit of this. This is an interest, the interesting con- uh, context of chapter 6. He's just finishing up, telling Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. Um, verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul now is talking about the the return of Christ, right? So that's in our mind now, Christ returning. So you hold fast. You hold this fast, Timothy, until he returns. And then he's going to break forth in another doxology here. And he says, which he, God, will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So here we have all these features, again, of a doxology, breaking out into spontaneous praise of God. We've got the attributes of God. We've got God being ascribed with eternal... uh, dominion and honor, etc. But if we think about it in the context of the return of Christ, and then he says, he, uh, which he will display at the proper time, it's just a reminder. Um, and this is where Paul's going to go here, just emphasizing the sovereignty of God. Like that reminder that no matter what you're seeing, Timothy, around you, understand that 
God is going to bring about the return of Christ at the proper time. It's going to happen. And as a matter of fact, everything that's transpiring between now and then, God is in control of. Whenever, whatever you see, you can look around and see it going on in the world or, or whatever, and you can say, this is all part of the plan. Like there's nothing outside of the sovereign control and direction of God. This is all part of the plan. And uh, somebody was telling me earlier, Mike Rocker, uh, not today, but earlier this week, I don't think he's here tonight, but he was telling me how, you know, when he, he tries to think of the, these future prophecies and the return of Christ in mind when he's thinking about what he reads in the newspaper every day, understanding that what God is doing is working all things according to the counsel of his will. There's nothing happening that isn't part of the plan. And God's people weren't even supposed to worry about. Jesus even said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. You're not to worry about these things. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's going to unfold. We see all these things happening and we know that our sovereign one is in control, right? That's what he's reminding Timothy. This is going to happen. Uh, he who is, verse 15 the blessed and only sovereign. So the blessed and only sovereign. He's the, he is the blessed one. God is, meaning all blessedness comes from him. One author put it this way, God, it's God as containing all happiness in himself and bestowing it on men, Right? Think about this, he does all he does for his own glory, but it does not increase his blessedness. He possessed blessedness for all eternity. And he didn't need, right? We've talked about this before with God. He didn't need us to make him feel satisfied. You know, he didn't have a, a, a void in his heart or a longing uh, that he needed or a loneliness to fill. His good, out of his goodness, the goodness of who he is, he wants to allow us to experience his blessedness that he bestows upon us for all eternity. It was really amazing. That's love. That's perfect love to us, to, to allow us to experience this perfect blessedness, especially when we keep in mind the fact that we rebelled against him and didn't want him, and yet he still, out of his grace, then bestows this blessedness on us from his own being and his own essence. It's a pretty amazing thing. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We partake in this blessedness that comes from us. And he is the only sovereign. Um, and when I think of that, the idea is um, all, he is the only one who is truly sovereign in every aspect or meaning of it. He has both authority to do what he wants to do and the power to carry it out. Earthly kings and rulers can have some authority. They may want something, but they don't have the power to carry it out. He has it all. He is the one who is only sovereign in this sense. As a matter of fact, Jesus, giving his testimony before Pilate, told Pilate, you would have no authority at all over me unless it had been given to you from above. Your authority, you think you've got this authority over me? You wouldn't have anything over me if it weren't coming from the only sovereign God, okay, that's bestowed it. Uh, Romans 13, of course, reminds us, and uh, when we get our, uh, our political knickers in a bunch or whatever you can say, I don't know what a pastor can say in front of me, but we're getting all upset about the authorities and the government that we're uh, in charge of here. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those who that exist have been instituted by God. No one has authority unless it's been given to him by God. He is the only sovereign. And whether they recognize it or not, this is what's interesting, whether the, the earthly authority recognizes it or not, they've been given their authority by God. I mean, Pilate would have chuckled at what he said by that, right? 
but he's the only sovereign. And then in continuation of that, back in 1 Timothy 6, he is the King of Kings, right? And the Lord of Lords. That is, uh, these are very active terms. In other words, it's most, it's uh, literally the King over the ones kinging and the Lord over the ones lording. So all of these earthly rulers that have ever been, earthly authorities, earthly governments, whatever it may be, they're doing their kingly things and their ruling things, but they may not, they don't know this most likely, unless they're godly leaders, that there is one kinging and lording over them. He is the one over them. Um, I love Proverbs 21.1. I love this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I love that. It's just, he channels it in the direction he wants it to go so that nothing happens that is out of his control or catches him by surprise, right? What, how, can it be any more comforting than that? Like our God is in absolute control of all things and all peoples and all leaders and all rulers. No wonder we're told, be anxious for nothing, right? That's why we're told that. Yes, Flory. I love that verse in Proverbs 16, 4, where it says, The Lord be everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the evil die. Yeah, right. That's good. Yes, that's right. That's right. All things under his control. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, you say this, God, in your word, mm. and it's true, mm-hmm. but it's really difficult sometimes to soak that in and to accept it mm. as true and, yeah. and not doubt and keep going forward. Yeah, you right. Know what I mean? Oh, I, I understand exactly sometimes what you mean. You yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you become weak. Sometimes you, you, you don't fall away, but you just lose heart. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. But God's ways are so much higher than our ways. Yes. And we're not going to be able to figure it all out. Now. Right, right. Yes. We have to wait someday for some of these mysteries yeah. to be unveiled. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, we, you know, we, we can know these things, but when we're walking through life, and through the trials and through different things, and we're seeing, uh, experiencing all these things in real time, it is a real fight at times of faith and over our emotions because we get discouraged. And um, I guess the only counsel that we can get would be you fight through that with the Word of God and you know the sword of the Spirit and you say to yourself what you know is true, and you say it to God what you know is true. And, uh, and you're right but when you said, he brings us out of those times, and he's good to do that. So, yeah, that's good. Good. Yes, it Christopher. reminds me, like that, that God has my back. Recently at work, we lost our major boss. Hmm. Everything, everything's overwhelming. You can't handle it. But I met with a new boss on Friday, and it's like as soon as I did that, I could sleep, I could rest because I knew somebody was in charge. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That that's good. That reminds me of an illustration I heard once in a sermon. It was about a, a TV show, um, the TV show Twenty Four. I don't know if anybody ever watched that or knew of it or whatever. But the main character was Jack Bauer, played by Kiefer Sutherland. And he would, every show, by the end of the show, he was in this predicament. And the, the preacher would say, the preacher said, every time I'd watch that show, I'd be like, how's Jack going to get out of this one? You know, it'd be like odds against him or whatever. And then he said, but then I realized that Kiefer Sutherland was the producer of the show. So he was in control of his own character. And he's like, ah, I turned that mess off because I know Jack's going to get out of this one because he's a producer of a show. But anyway, that whole idea that 
realizing that God is in control, I think is so important for us to see in a world that seems like it's falling apart with God, knowing that God is in control of those things and sovereign and is directing it. He is the producer, the executive producer of all things that are happening. So, yeah, Aaron. Yes. Is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, right. And so he is not created. Yeah. Right. That's right. Good. Uh, two more. He, he alone has immortality. Here's where we have with immortality, right, the essence of undyingness, the meaning of undyingness. And uh, God is life. In him is life. Um, and there is no death. Okay, he is the undying God. And what's glorious is when Jesus says, if you come to me, the one who John said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In a dying world, is not the life that Jesus offers light? In a dark world of you know death is coming, and Jesus comes in and says, I offer you eternal life. This is truly his life in us, right? The the life of God in His people by His grace. And Jesus has the keys. That's right. He has the keys to that. And we too will be undying um, and experience the fullness of eternal life and glory. And then uh, He dwells in unapproachable light. We talked about this when we looked at Exodus 34 and we looked at Moses and the glory of God that He allows that uh, special manifestation of his glory in heaven now, right? And um, that brightness that comes from it, that exceeds from it, that is uh, that the eye of sinful man cannot see, right? The, the idea is his glory, his brightness is unapproachable. It's his holiness, his splendor, his majesty is... Um, is uh, some, one of his attributes that causes within our hearts both uh, fear to one degree, but also awe in, in reverence. Uh, so, and then he says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, again referring back to his invisibility. But here it is, to him be honor and eternal dominion amen so it ends again with this praise of god and ascribing to him the honor and glory that is due to him okay good doxologies they are good sources of um, information about god and good sources of worship maybe in a time where you're in uh, you need to kindle in your heart some worship, maybe find a doxology or two and start committing those to memory and then praying them back to God and warming your heart again to who He is, reminding yourself who He is. could be helpful to you. Good. Anything else before we close up? Good, good. And then Bill, last one, yeah. Two things. We've got, we've got Paul writing this letter to Timothy to try to prop him up, give him direction and stuff. Timothy was 21. Hmm. 
he was just a young man mm -hmm. I mean, going into this situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's kind of, we kind of have to look at, at his age here, I mean, in, in regards to this. He cannot, I, I could understand his apprehension in uh, the task before him. Mm -hmm. And then we're talking about the triune nature of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God said, let's make man in our image. And we have this verse that says that here we are. Yeah, it is. Now, see, Bill, why'd you have to go and open a can of worms right at the end? Because <laughs> we'd have to rewind all the way back to when we talked about the uniqueness of the triunity of God. <laughs> On that note. No, I'm kidding. Good. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us and your grace. Thank you for caring for us. We believe and confess that you are sovereign over all things and we can trust you completely and you're going to work things together for our eternal good and we are going to be in glory uh, singing our praises, your praises for all eternity and we thank you for that. pray you'd encourage everyone here now and we'd leave encouraged in the Lord and ready to, to go be uh, Christians in this in this world. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, everybody.